Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out. I'm Billy Allen. I'm Niels Nielsen. And I'm John Mayer. And today we are joined by my boss and uh, <laughs> my former former coach. He is the head coach at Loyola Marymount, and he's also the assistant coach for the women's national team. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm a longtime fan and listener. <laughs> yeah, that's why we've kept going because we knew you were listening. You got to start with someone and grew from there. <laughs> So to start out, wanted to get into your journey and your path to becoming a better coach. There was a, a personal connection, obviously, for me and for both of us. We don't do a lot of bio stuff on the show, but I think this one is worth doing. So we'll do it. So kind of our, our origin story. I knew Tom in high school. He coached me when I was 16 years old, 17 years old at Thousand Oaks High School. And he was a good high school coach, hardworking, passionate, emotional. And then uh, convinced me to continue playing at Pierce College, where he also ended up coaching me there. And again, same traits, hardworking. We won a state championship there. I thought he was an awesome coach. And then after that, uh, I lost contact with Tom for about six or seven years. Would see you here and there. You were at UCSD. And then when we reconnected, when you came back to LMU, you were a different coach, completely different coach, I felt like, than the person I had known then. And I and just wanted to go through kind of what that path looked like and how you became the coach you are. Because that different coach, I think, was a better coach. And to me, one of the elite coaches in the country. So take that as you will. How do you want to answer that non-question? Well, I guess I'm curious for my own learning what different things you saw. I guess the the first thing that would jump out was just, I mean, your knowledge base, your understanding of each part of the game. You're able to dissect every skill and every part of every skill. So let's start there, I guess. All the, the info you know about the technical and the reading side of the game. I think uh, I, you know, I graduated college in 96, and then from 96 to, I don't know, like 2002 or something, you know, I was pretty much coaching you. Either at, well, I was coaching at Royal High School for a little bit. I was mentored under a really good leader, uh, Bob Ferguson. And, you know, I didn't know a lot. I thought I knew a lot. So I was kind of in player mode as a coach. You know, I was just trying to take my own experiences as a player, I think uh, because I was mainly a player, not really didn't have much of a coaching knowledge. I almost thought I could kind of like will myself or the team like through emotion, you know, to get to where we want to go. And I mean, I wasn't telling it to myself that way, but in retrospect, I can see that. But I think the big change for me was the two years when I was at Pierce, you know, one of those years I coached you. And I know my dad was a Marine and he says a lot about boot camp. It was, you know, the formative experience of his life, but he would never want to do it again. I kind of feel like Pierce, I, I don't know how much more uncomfortable I could have been than my two years at Pierce, but it just shaped everything for me. There was a, a legendary coach there named Ken Stanley, Big Daddy. John knows very well. And I was the head coach and he was the assistant, but he was basically the head coach. And I was trying to act like the head coach. Stepping into a situation where you, know, you guys were back-to-back state champions, uh, the coach before me, Greg Vernovich, had unbelievable amount of credibility with you guys, and I had zero. I thought there was definitely a vibe on like, who the heck is this? guy, this high school coach, you know, coming to coach us. And I felt like an imposter. I think the guy saw me as an imposter. Big Daddy knew 50 times more than me. And I can tell a million stories about that. But just unbelievable discomfort. You know, I mean, I don't know if you remember, like, Big Daddy, he would stop drill sometimes, just cut me off and change the drill. And we would just start, you know, I mean, so like, you know, I'd be cut off at the knees a lot. And it was just crazy. But, you know, we were able to win a state championship, which is just an awesome story in and of itself, you know, how that happened. And, through those two years, Big Daddy really, he really taught me the laws of learning. I really started to see there was a science behind how people learn and how people teach. 
I learned so much about leadership and organizing the team just through trying to have to get the team to buy in when they were not bought into me at all. You know, I mean, you you guys were very bought into the history of Ferris and being a great team, but not to me as the coach at all. It was just, that was a crazy challenge. It was just everything was hard, like, you know, all the time. And I just, I can't believe how much I grew from it. There's definitely been times in my coaching career since then I've been uncomfortable and it's been tough, but nothing comes close to that. And then from there, I got involved in Gold Medal Squared with Dr. Carl McGowan, who taught me way more about motor learning. And I really started to learn more and I was able to reach out to other people. Ron Larson taught me so much about applying motor learning to practice. And then from there on in, it's learn, 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 learn. And I don't think I've really stopped coaching. I mean, there's been very few days I haven't coached in the past 15 years. And there was those years from Pierce to when I was at SC and I was coaching at Pierce or coaching as an assistant men for SC and running a boys club and coaching a girls club team and coaching gold medal square camps and Marv Dumpy's camp in the summer. And it was just endless. So it was just rep, 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 rep under some great mentors. And it just helped me get better. Kind of want to go back to, you said one of the mentors you had that formed your early development as a coach was Bob Ferguson. That was my first mentor. He was at Royal High School. He created a powerhouse. He wasn't super knowledgeable about volleyball, but he was a great leader. Everyone on that team bought into the direction that he wanted them to go. He truly cared about them, but he had incredibly high expectations of them and the coaches. I mean, he would ride herd on anyone. I guess I just want to kind of hear some uh, specifics about why he was such a good mentor and a leader and maybe some things or examples of how he was able to get guys to buy in, especially maybe if he didn't have the knowledge base, what kind of things was he doing? Well, I mean, I, I think there's certain things you can't fake if you're going to be an authentic person. And I think people gravitate to authentic people. Like you just get a sense about people. I mean, if he needed to stay up till two in the morning, seven straight days to get his team going, then he was going to stay up until two in the morning, seven straight days. If he needed to blow a guy up in practice, he would blow him up, but he would always follow up. And, you know, he would talk to that guy as long as it took to get their relationship back on track. There's a couple of things that really struck me right away. One was the vibe as soon as I got in the gym. I mean, there's reasons for us with intuition. We all pick up on different social cues. But when I walked in and on that gym, I mean, you could just feel that these people were here to play volleyball and to do it as well as they could. And there was nothing else. And that's just a really special feeling. You know, I know every gym aspires for that, but I felt that and that attracted me right away. And then the other thing that attracted me right away is you could tell this guy had a clear vision for what success looked like at Royal, that these guys were going to play hard. And that way, he just constantly talked about that. And he was going to hold him accountable to it. So he kind of had this dogmatic presence, like, don't push this guy. But what really struck me was, I mean, I still remember this. This was so long ago, but it goes on a box or something, hitting a guy's and he was teaching blocking footwork. And I, I thought it was just way off what he was saying, blocking footwork. And I just kind of held the ball for a second and I looked at him and the guys are in front of me and I definitely didn't want to challenge him, but it, I just thought it was way off. And I just said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And he, again, he had a really dogmatic, strong presence and he's just like, yeah, sure. And so he had the guys get a water break and, I just told him what I thought. And he goes, you know what? You're right. And this is mid-practice. And he's like, hey, we're changing. I'm wrong. He's right. Let's do it. And I was like, God, this guy's a man. Like, he doesn't want to be right. He wants to do what is right. And that has such a strong impression on me. And then, you know, I think praise from a credible source early. I remember coaching his freshman girls team and he was just watching her practice and he just kind of watched for an hour. And when the practice is over, he just kind of put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, Tom, I think God gave you a great disposition for this craft. And that just fired me up, you know, that he said that. So I think, you know, when you get praise from people you respect like that, that motivates you to do more. So I think he really taught me a, a vision for the program and leading. But then going to Pierce with Big Daddy, he really is like, this is how you teach. This is why this works. I'm grateful for someone from Ken's family. But one of the most grateful things I am is just, it's very rare that someone will spend as much time as it takes with you, especially in the coaching realm. It's really hard to get that. He was so tough on me and relentless. I can tell so many stories about that. I was substitute teaching during my first year at Pierce. 
So a lot of times, you know, you're substitute teaching and the teacher's like, hey, show a video for all six periods. So, you know, you have eight hours free. And he told me to meet him in his house at 4.30 and we would go over practice for the next day at Paris. So from 8 a.m. to 4, you know, I mean, it's not eight hours straight, but maybe six of those hours, I am just grinding every detail of this practice plan. And I'm just thinking about how he's going to counter this and why he's going to say this drill is bad. And, and I'm working, working, working. And so I go over the 4.30 and I'm just like, come on, this, this one's got to work. And it's just X, X. And then 30 seconds, it just 15 times better practice. Like, oh, just, just crushed me, you know, but the fact that he would take that much care and time, I mean, I, you can't pay that back. And how much I learned over those two years is just incredible. I don't know. You can make a case that in the 15 years after that, maybe I've learned an equal of what those two years were. So he's, he's an incredible guy. To talk about Pierce a little bit, you said that those were the two toughest years. Yeah, I guess a lot of people maybe would have backed down or gotten bummed about coaching or handled it differently. So I'm wondering how you would handle the tough moments, like how that motivated you or how it changed you. I kind of had a feeling that my back was to the wall, that if I wasn't able to see this through, like that was it. And maybe that wasn't actually reality, but that's just how I felt. This is a great program. There's a great teacher here. We have good players. This program has been successful. I just have no excuse. If I, if I can't find a way to make this work, then I don't know if I can keep doing this. And I knew that I really wanted to do it. I knew I loved it. And there's a few things that happened. I had a great friend there, Eureka Lerner, that you know really well. And he was an assistant coach also, so he knew everybody really well was involved. And I remember we went to lunch after practice, and I'm ditching, ditching, ditching about how hard this is. And, and he just stopped me, and he goes, look, man, like, is Big Daddy a better coach than you or not? And I'm like, yeah, obviously. And he's like, well, do you want to get better or not? And that was it. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how to answer that. That hit me pretty hard. I remember my dad writing a note in my mirror at the time. Like, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is your self-respect. Make sure you can look yourself in the mirror when you wake up. So I didn't really feel like he'd give up there. And then I remember another day, I just, there was, there was times at Paris where it was just hard. You know, I didn't feel like I had the team. I didn't feel like I had the credibility. And I remember one day even feeling with all that, I remember I still couldn't wait to get in the gym at Paris. And I was just like, if it is this hard and I can't wait to get in the gym, then this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, like I said, I, I couldn't be more grateful for those two years either. For coaches listening, if they find themselves in a situation like you did, where maybe they're in over their heads, um, <laughs> is that something you address with the team? Do you kind of admit some of that stuff? How honest are you with the players or do you just kind of like fake it till it works and figure it out? I don't know if I was emotionally aware enough to be that open. I think that would have helped a lot. Like I was just trying to figure it out and I was overwhelmed and, you know, I was really young. I think I was like 27, 28 and these, a lot of these guys are 21. And I think that's what caused so many of the problems too. You know, it's just, I wasn't ready. You know, I wasn't uh, emotionally aware enough. I think, you know, cause if I would have handled it now, I probably would have been a lot more open about it and would have been a lot more comfortable with my faults, but I just felt like I didn't know anything and I didn't feel like the guys deserved someone who didn't know anything. So I was really trying to be someone who knew something, you know, and I think I was handling it the best I could in that moment. So I don't know exactly how to answer it because obviously now I would totally admit it and, you know, hey, let's get better. But I feel like in so many ways, I was just kind of a kid along with them and wanted to be a coach they deserved. That's where guided discovery comes in because you just ask them for the answer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they would have run over me. I mean, they, they almost ran over me as it is. That would have really... <laughs> You said something about some of the things that you learned from Ken Stanley, like this is how we teach something and this is why it works to teach it that way. Can you maybe pick one skill or one thing that stood out for you that stands out that you can give an example of? Yeah. So I remember with the practice plan and, you know, like I said, I would agonize with the practice plan and he would tear it up and I mean, I'm going to give you a long answer, but uh, the practice is 6am every day. We practice from six to nine and the setters would come in at five. So I would get in the office in the back around four 30 and he would get in around 440 or he'd already be there or something and it, he would invariably wait until maybe seven minutes before practice and start and go okay what are we doing today tom and it was just the worst because i would say what we we're doing 
he would tear it up. He would like do three drills in three minutes that were a million times better. And I had never thought about it in my life. And then he'd be like, okay, you're the head coach. So, you know, go run it. I just be like, it was just the worst. So like, you know, I was fighting this battle all the time. So I finally had this one blocking drill that I really liked. Now I would hate it now, but at the time I really liked it. It was really organized and had all this stuff going on. And I remember going in like, okay, I don't care what he says. I'm standing my ground. I'm the head coach. We're doing my drill. Right. So I, you know, so he was kind of fighting in the morning and I, I'm like, Hey, we're doing it my way. And he kind of backed off. So we run it. And, uh, and then I remember after practice, I get up the courage. So big daddy, what'd you think of my drill? He goes, I hated it. It was a horrible drill. There wasn't a single ounce of transfer in that drill. Like, you know, I'm like, Oh man. He's like, I don't think that drill could have been any worse. And I'm just like, wow. and then I remember actually, it was actually, we went to lunch and then like two hours later, like for some reason I was like a glutton for punishment. I go, I go, Hey, big dad, do you think I'm doing a good job? And he goes, I think you're doing a great job. I think you're an awesome coach. And I'm like, Oh, I don't, I can't connect the dots here. <laughs> But yeah, but that, like when he tore that drill up, then he was like, okay, this is why there was no transfer in that. Like, you know, you, you made it look really organized, which is great, but this is about getting better at volleyball and none of that really happened here. And what was the drill that you had him doing and what was he saying that there was no transfer about? Uh, I called it Bulgarian blocking because at the time I believe someone told me that the Bulgarians invented it. So you're basically on three boxes and this is a long time ago, but you have to do all these forward patterns. And then when you do this, I hit it and then... If something else happens, another coach hits it and, and it's all synchronized and it looks great. And there's lots of balls flying and lots of people getting stuff blocks. And so I'm just like, how can you not like this? You know, and he just kept asking, like, where was the transfer in this drill? And I didn't want to hear it for a while. And again, this is where I'm lucky. He just hung in there and just kept bashing me over the head. And, and I thought, OK, like there is a science to this. And one of the big lessons I learned in that, I, obviously, I still remember it. Yeah, this isn't about my drill. This isn't about my design. This is about what's best for the players, what actually works. And another thing that he did, kind of like Bob Ferguson, when he had this aura of invincibility, but then he just asked me what was the right way that I thought, and he thought it was better, so he did it. The thing I thought about Ken Stanley, he was the first person I've ever been around that I felt was like the Michael Jordan of his craft. I'd never been around someone who was so good at what they did that they had an answer for every little thing. They were like 10 steps ahead of me. I'd never been around someone that high level, and I was fascinated by it. So I was always trying to learn as fast as I could. And then I remember us talking about, I don't know if you remember this job, but we were, we were toying around in front of the uh, slide with Ken Hauser. We were yeah. trying to figure out how to teach it. And the next day, he's on the phone with Rick McLaughlin because he was coaching the women at Santa Barbara. And he was trying to ask, like, you know, how do you guys teach the slide? And I was just like, how could this guy who knows everything about the game, like the first thing he does is call someone else. And just not even a hint of, I might look dumb or this might not make me look at Like, not even a hint. It was just like, you have the information, give it to me so I can get better. It was just that simple. And God, it's just, that was just another huge lesson for me. Like, it's about learning, relentlessly learning. Like, it's never about what you look like. Those guys just gave me such huge, powerful images of it and taught me, like, okay, that's, that's how you find out the best you can. I can remember him, we were doing, I don't know, some sort of blocking drill or whatever. And he'd come over and, and say something like, Hey, uh, I talked to uh, Marv Dunphy on the phone yesterday and, and he said, your, your right foot should go towards the pole. And like that, I was going to do it. If you would have told me, hey, make your right foot go to the, the pole, like, ah, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I remember that so clearly. Like, okay, well, if this guy's calling like some elite college coach and finding out info, then I'm I'm all in. And I also remember him being incredibly honest with me too. Uh, oh. He wasn't afraid to put me in my place. I, I got to share this one story. You can edit this out if you don't like that. This is like the paradox of Big Daddy. Like, how does he be so brutally honest and still get the guy to do anything that he wants? So we had this great international player and he wasn't trying too hard in practice. We were talking about him in the coach's room and, and he's walking by the office and Big Daddy sees him. So he gets up. He goes, hey, get over here. I'm not going to say his name. And he goes, hey, he has a piece of paper and he has a pencil. And he goes, John, it's not John, but he goes, John, 
This is a good volleyball player, and he draws a circle. This is a bad volleyball player, and he draws a circle below it. Then he goes, this is a good attitude. He draws another circle. He goes, this is a bad attitude. <laughs> right now, you're a horrible volleyball player with a terrible attitude. <laughs> He's like, do you know what I would say to you right now? I would say, bye-bye, John. Get on the boat back to your country. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Just getting crushed, and we're trying not to laugh. And then he looks at Big Daddy and goes, thank you. <laughs> and then Big Daddy's like, okay, see you tomorrow. And I'm like, how does that work? Just this guy had a gift. I mean, brutally, brutally honest. And every single time the player was more loyal than when they started. It was just incredible. That was another big lesson for me. I, I've never been as good at that as he is, but it's, it's just a constant standard in my head. Like, tell the truth, tell the truth, be direct, like give them what they need. And I've never been able to phrase it or do it as well as he's done, but it's just this awesome standard. When working with a national team, what role do you take? Well, my main focus is the setters. So therefore the offense, because that's the main focus. Where would you start with a setter, say, limited volleyball experience? Where do you start with that? Yeah, I start with the keys. Uh, two things about setting that are formidable for being the USA setting coach. Setting has got to be taught in more different ways than any other skill. I mean, my God, it's, I, I can't believe how many different ways setting is taught. And people are just passionate about their approach to teaching setting. I mean, I don't know. There's something, and Joe Trenzi's got a great theory on it. Yeah, I feel like we could have a conversation here about passing and no one would get too emotional about it. But, oh, my God, like put another setting philosophy guy on this and it's like war. I can't believe how heated it gets. Joe Trinzi, his opinion on that is because setting doesn't actually score, it's much harder to quantify. And because it's much harder to quantify, opinion has more space. So, you know, mm -hmm. people are able to kind of like create their opinion or their methodology and it becomes like very personal to them. Where like maybe passing or hitting or serving, there's more objective measurements. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. You can't argue with that immediate result that everybody saw. So that's the theory that it actually kind of holds true to me. But I would start with, I'd start with the keys. I'd start with your finish and then get to your feet a little bit and then get to the read. Can you talk a little bit about teaching in keys? Yeah. The brain has a limited ability to process information. And the part of your brain that plays volleyball doesn't use language. It's a different part of the brain. So because we have a limited ability to process information, for instance, you can probably, if I press, do you remember about three to four words that I've said so far? You can't remember the past 20 minutes. So we want to speak in really short bursts. We don't, we want about three to five words. That's about right. And we want it to be highly visual to the point where it's an exact image of what you want to do. And that's why finding the right keys is a never ending process because you don't want to say something that's sort of what you like to do because the learner is going to recreate the image in the brain that you're saying. So if it's sort of what you want to do, you're going to get a sort of motor pattern going. And you guys have done some incredible podcasts with John Kessel. Thank you for doing that. I've been diving into the research. Now we know that you want your language to be extrinsic. So an image of the movement and the goal of the movement, not the actual body part. So three to five words, highly visual and extrinsic. Those are what we want our keys to be. And there's some great keys out there, but I think it's also a never ending process because we're always learning more about the game. And the last part is, is it working? Like, is the athlete getting better? You can't say like, I've been teaching this forever and they're not getting it. It's like, well, what the hell are you saying then? It's got to be working. It's got to be helping. Specifically, what are some of the keys you use for, let's say, setting and passing? So for setting, it's finish fast and open. We want to uh, face the ball, face the target. So that's setting off a lead leg. And then we want to read the pass. We can explain setting at the highest level in literally three minutes. It's not that complicated. Like what's hard about it is doing it over and over and over again, like any skill that's mastering. Do you have any metaphors that you use that seem to have resonated with some players? Well, I'm going to start working on that a lot more since, I mean, your podcast really helped a lot and we've already been changing some keys. We don't have a setter in our LMU gym right now, so I haven't been as focused on it. I, I definitely will be this summer with LMU, but you know, I think fast and open 
is, I don't know if that's a metaphor, but it's, it's an extrinsic key. You know, we say run and rotate a lot and setting off a lead leg. You know, you want to drive your left knee early. You want to run to the ball, drive your left knee early. Yeah, see the platform. Like that's extrinsic. So I think those are fairly extrinsic already. But I think one thing I talked a lot about was like feel your hands or have your hands open. And I'm going to go way away from that. There's definitely some refining to be done. Tom, why set off one leg? And then would you teach that at every level? Yeah, I would. I mean, I definitely believe in jump setting when the quick's involved. That's nothing new. It shortens the distance between you and the middle hitter. Therefore, it makes it harder to read on the other side of the net. I think it makes the setter a little more dynamic and takes it a higher point, all that stuff. But I think when you're on the move, you really, the way I see it, you kind of have three options. You can try to put two feet down, you can jump to it, or you can rotate off a lead leg. There might be something I'm missing, but those are like the three basic options. So, but what I see is when the ball's off the net, if you're jumping to it, again, I'm not trying to get an argument with anyone. Someone's going to be hating me as soon as I say this, but if you jump to it, then you tend to be reaching out to it. So that takes power and options away. If you're trying to put two feet down, that means you have to put the brakes down. So you're slowing down. Therefore, that takes options away. And the thing I like about the pivot is it's a way to run as fast as possible ball without really having to slow down. And you use the torque to balance you. And the other benefit of that torque is because you've increased your power, you can fling the ball along the net longer and faster. So there's just lots and lots of benefits. And because you're doing the same move all the time, you become that much harder to read. You know, being deceptive is just about doing the same thing over and over and over. And if you are jumping to the ball or trying to put two feet down, it's pretty much impossible to take the ball in the same spot or to look the same each time. So those are my reasons. I'm totally open to change if there's a better thing, but you know, those are uh, what we've seen. Imagine if you would have known that back at Pierce, how good a setter I could have been. Yeah, you, you were just an open book. You, you love that stuff. <laughs> Give me more technique. That was all I heard from you. <laughs> well, if you would have been teaching me the right stuff, I mean, you're telling me this <laughs> two foot stuff. Hey, I'll own my half, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten better as a learner, I hope. You have. It's incredible. It's oh, really good. incredible. Yeah, Tom, while we have you on here, you work with John at LMU, but you also coach him on the beach some. So is John coachable? Is he a know-it-all? Give us some dirt. Man, I've told John this and I believe it. I mean, I would pay a lot of money to have John articulate his process in a way that we could all learn from it. I mean, you know, John talked about that gap. So before that gap, I thought John was like one of the greatest people I knew and so passionate about playing. And for all the Oshuk stuff, like when it came to game time, it was it was war. You know, he was going to battle, but he just hated the technical part of the game. But what was impressive to me was he would just keep going levels, you know, like so. He basically was told he wasn't really welcome to play varsity basketball in high school. Like he wanted, he could if he wanted, but he'd be the four string point guard. So when the basketball coach in high school heard that, I thought he'd be the starting setter. He kind of pushed him towards volleyball. So this is a guy who wasn't even really wanted on the varsity basketball team. All of a sudden he's a starting setter for his varsity team in high school. Then he goes and redshirts at Pierce College. All of a sudden he becomes state player of the year and they win a state championship. You're like, okay. Then all of a sudden he goes to Pepperdine to be a setter, which makes sense. And they go to a final four. Then he gets moved to Libero. Then he gets moved to opposite, and he ends up playing three different positions and winning a national championship. Then he goes on to the AVP and becomes MVP of the AVP. It's just so that part in itself is incredible. Like, how is this unassuming guy who's just, you know, how does he keep crushing levels, even though he doesn't seem super goal-specific? But what I've seen in the the six-year gap between us and, and seeing him now is the one thing that's tremendously changed is his curiosity for why things work and, and trying to find it out in a really open way, not a defensive way. And he's really accepted that there is a method to being really good and you need to figure that out and you have to be open to learning that. You can't get frustrated by how tedious that is. You have to actually be like kind of excited to figure out those little lessons. And that's been a huge shift in his maturity and makes him just really, really fun to coach. And so basically what I'm saying is he knows that I'm right all the time now. And <laughs> that just is really more enjoyable. 
<laughs> so that's why we have him on this show so we can be a championship podcast you need a winner <laughs> exactly yeah. it's been a cool path to see it i mean can you imagine having your high school and junior college coach be someone who ends up coaching the national team i think i hit the lottery there and then to be able to come full circle and have him coach me now on the beach as i've already said one of the best coaches in the country like if i'm not open to that to learn from that, then I'm an idiot. So I'm really uh, been lucky to have him in my life and lucky to, to have him so involved now. So I owe a lot to Tom. Just wanted to, to really point out that like the two years at Pierce, you described as hard and uncomfortable at times. And those were like the key to you becoming a better coach, which I think is something we should all recognize as players and coaches, embracing uncomfortable situations and realizing that these are keys to me getting to where I want to get and I thought when we talked about it, you're going to be like, oh, you know, I did gold medal squared clinics and I read this book and that's why, you know, I've got better as a coach. But it's interesting to hear that it was the uncomfortable situation. I think we should take that away. I'm just worried about today a little bit. There's absolutely going to be people that go through really tough times and they're going to find their resolve and their mettle and their passion from that. And that's never going to change. But volleyball keeps changing, especially at the youth level. And I'm not always sure it's for the better. And I don't really know what my point is other than I'm just worried. This isn't the kid's fault. Like their lives are so structured, you know, like go to a club and the coach takes care of it and the parents are going to be there watching and then go to the college. And if you're really good, you're going to go to this big time college and they're going to take care of everything for you. And then you go into life and they just can't handle the fact that you have to stand on your own two feet and you have to get challenged and you have to have those dark moments of doubt and not be sure if you can do it and you have to get up and do it anyways. And by no means am I saying that no kids are exposed to that. There's some kids who absolutely are exposed to it, but those are the kids that are going to be special. Those kids that have fought through that. And I'm really, really worried. And this is kind of a rant. I'm just really worried that we're in this frenetic rush to take all that away. Because it's really hard. It's really hard to ask a 12-year-old kid with your parents there and coaches who care about you to really let them like go through something hard and let them figure it out themselves because it's just some things you're not supposed to be around for you're not supposed to be around for when you're out there playing football in the street and you get in a fight and you got to figure it out and you got to make up with your friends and figure out if you're going to play again the next day and there's just all these lessons and again i don't have a point other than i'm really worried about it and one thing i just think about all the time is how can i start a club that has the structure to have no structure like how can i have people pay for that you know how do i get them in a gym and just let them figure it out and, and play I guess I'm concerned when you're coaching a kid who's in their 20s and you're pushing them hard and you can just tell that this is the first time. They just haven't been in a sink and sink or swim. I just think that's a huge injustice. We don't need 25-year-old teenagers. You know, We need 25-year-old mature young adults who are ready to take on the world. And I know there are lots of people like that. I'm not trying to make some blanket generalization, but I'm just worried about the trend in general. How do you address that in your gym at the collegiate level? What kind of things have you put in place to let the players know that, hey, this is going to be challenging and you just got to be able to step up? We say we're about learning. We have one core value. It's about learning. And then we just really want to try to understand what learning means. What does that mean to be a learner? Obviously, you're going to find that out when you're challenged. We have high expectations to be the best we possibly can be. And we're going to get pushed. We're going to play really good teams. So I'm lucky that the format of the season allows me to kind of teach that. You know, we're backing down right now. Is that is that who we are? Or, you know, like we want to be successful, but this is what you need to do to be successful. Are you willing to be uncomfortable this week in practice to get there? I just use the challenges that are inherent in the season to try to build us to who we want to be. And the discomfort is when, yes, I want to do it, but I don't really want to do it. You know, I want to do it, but I don't want to pay the price. And that's my biggest job, I think, as a teacher, as a coach, is to go, you actually do want to do this. You know, like dive in here with me and you do want to do this. This is, this is the person you want to be. I think that's my absolute biggest job. I don't know what's more important than that. I like that. <laughs> I run into it a little bit at a lower level and I'm in the process of trying to figure it out. 
what ends up happening at my level is as soon as the adversity strikes, I get a phone call from the parents. And so I end That's up a whole having different to deal, coach, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm coaching the parents through what's happening more than the players and there is some science. I mean, this isn't a cure-all, but there are some things you can do in the very beginning that increase your likelihood. And I think you're probably doing half of them. But, you know, the book Mindset, it's just it's just proven that if you teach people how the brain works, there's a 50% better chance of having success in terms of the values you want, in terms of resiliency, learning, you know, expressing those values. So giving a quick little brain lesson, that for sure is going to help. I think I actually heard you guys talk about working through Mindset with your parents. So it's a huge one. You know more about this than me. I mean, I know it seems like a lot of great elementary school teachers that they are really good at putting the parents through the process with them. And coaching isn't exactly the same. It's a different deal, but it almost seems like it's not reality necessary to pretend the parents aren't going to be involved unless I'm sure there's some great club coaches who have figured it out a way. You know, Aaron Benning's our assistant. He did a great job at City Beach of really making the parents understand the role in the process. So it's complicated. You know more about it than me, but I do know there's some things in the beginning that can increase your chances of success. Carol Dweck has those four we will statements that are invaluable. Maybe you don't have to say it exactly how she says it, but basically all four statements are saying we don't care who you are now. We care what you're going to be. You know, there's four different statements and I think they're all important, but that's, that's the main thing. We value learning. We value the process. We don't value your vertical jump and your height. Nobody here is a finished product. You know, we said that in USA. We say that at LMU all the time. And I think that helps. And again, that's not a cure-all. This is just increasing your likelihood because some kids are going to hear that. Some kids are going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it definitely increases your likelihood. So those we will statements that are basically, you know, the core value learning. And then a brain lesson is important. And I think one of the challenges of it is how do I make this as entertaining as possible to grab them? But it's just proven that when people understand how the brain works, when they understand how learning works, when they understand how the brain responds to mistakes and how it grows stronger, that they're going to be more willing for sure to be in the process. And then the third thing that I think is awesome I don't know if this is proven or not, but I think language norms are just big time. And I think that's a great time to do it in the very beginning. So basically, like because we value learning and because this is how the brain works, then clearly we want to say these things in our gym and not these things, because the number one determinant of how much better we're going to be is our response to that failure. And that, that response is that internal dialogue immediately after the error. We can definitely read it in people's body language, but I can't know exactly what you're saying in your head. You have to take responsibility for that. And as a teacher, I can point it out. Like I see, I see you slumped your shoulders after that mistake. What's going on right now? We can definitely teach them through that. But if we can get those language norms going from right from the beginning. So instead of a, I stink, man, if I try harder, I bet I can get better at this, you know, things like that. And so we will brain lesson language norms on the board, man, that saves you so much time, you know? And then no matter what you do, you're gonna have to get dirty with it. You know, it's day in and day. It's not a perfect process. It's not supposed to be. By definition, it's not supposed to be. If it was a perfect process, that would mean that I know exactly what to do. And if I know exactly what to do, that means I don't need to learn. We said we're all about learning. So how is that possible? You know, all of us have to get dirty here. But those things will absolutely enhance your chances. And if you're consistent with it day in and day out, you've set up this nice little platform. So I think those things can help. And I mean, as you guys keep doing this and bringing experts on, you're going to hear some other cool ideas that I'm excited to learn from based on science. You know, Actually, if you say this or do that. So I'm excited to keep learning those better ways to do it. That was part one of our talk with Tom Black. Join us next week as we dive into some listener questions, including questions that are relevant to each and every one of us. Tom, hypothetically, let's say you're a 34-year-old beach volleyball player getting into more serious coaching. (laughs) Where would you start now? And what would be like the most important thing to go to? That's next week on Coach Your Brains Out. Tom, I was going to say, hypothetically, let's say you're a 34-year-old beach volleyball player getting into more serious coaching, but let's just say you're a coach starting out. Um, where would you start now? And like, what would be like the most important thing to go to? Is it a good mentor coach? Is it the best team you can find? Is it running your own team? Is it volunteer assisting? Other than listening to this podcast, where would you start? 
Well, I think there's a million different ways to get as good as you possibly can. So I don't, I don't think you just have to do this or just have to do that. There's two things that I'm really grateful for in my career. One thing I'm really grateful for that isn't as common anymore is I was able to go step by step. I was an assistant coach in high school, then I was a head coach in high school. I was a head coach at a junior college, then I was an assistant men's division one assistant, and I was able to get a head division two job for women's to be able to come to LMU. And there's still lots of steps to go. But because I was able to go step by step, I was able to teach so many different age groups and both genders. And I don't feel like I skipped any steps and I got to see different evolutions of players at different times. So I, I get worried about this mad rush to I mean, I don't I can't I can't blame people. There's there's full time jobs with benefits at the divisional level. I can't begrudge anyone for that. But there's value in coaching every level and getting a good understanding of learners at different levels. So I'm really grateful for that step by step process I've been able to do. And the other thing I'm really grateful for you know, there's moment in life when times get hard and your back's to the wall and you got to do what's best for your family. So that's a separate deal. But I've been lucky enough to not be in that situation and be able to make the decision based on will these people or will this situation make me better? I'm just being honest. My insides churn a little bit when it's like, well, this job will give me this position or this will give me. I just can't. Oh, man, you probably see it on my face right now. I really like the step by step process. I think head coaching experience is invaluable. I think that leadership experience is invaluable. And if you feel like you're at a quote lower level, but a head coach, I could argue you're getting way more experience than someone at a higher level that doesn't have the responsibility you do to get that team going in the same direction. So I really like head coaching experience, but I think there's lots of ways to learn. But I definitely think your motivations for being in that job, you know, why, why are you there? I think that's a big determinant on how much better you're going to be. And, you know, Marv says it all the time. You get to choose who you go through life with. And I guess the only wrinkle, like, you know, I, I think you get to choose if you're going through life with people who are going to make you better. And I think that should be number one determinant for why you're taking that job. Unless there's, you know, life circumstances that are, which I completely respect. Yeah. I like the idea of thinking of the big picture of coaching, not just like this year, what's going to give me the most money, but in the long run, how can I be a better coach? Well, it sounds very much like some of the things you said in the beginning, which was be authentic too. Sounds like you're actually living that. Yeah, I think you want to be careful who you're associating yourselves with, too, you know, just from a learning perspective, because there are lots of ways to do things. And I think if you can kind of travel a path with people who are philosophically aligned with you and kind of get deeper and deeper into your beliefs, you can get better faster. So there's a ton of demands. You're balancing coaching with the national team and running a Division One program. So how then do you balance your family life, your relationship with your parents or stuff outside <laughs> of, of volleyball? How do you manage that? Um, I'm blessed with the important people in my life. I mean, my wife is incredible. There's there's no way I could do any of this without her. And, and if I wasn't married and didn't have kids, it would only be harder. I mean, they're my support base and they make me a better person for all this stuff. So she is number one by far. And then I think I've been really careful since taking on USA and LMU at the same time. You know, and then we had a beach within that time also. I've been really careful to make sure one is building on the other and it's not one separate from another. So if I'm learning from one, it should be building the other. If I have to spend time at one, it should hopefully enhance the profile of the other, I hope. If I'm working with people in one group, can I use the other group to have them contribute and get better also? So I'm try I, I've tried really hard to streamline everything and make it all cyclical and, and kind of one big group so that everybody feels like they're getting better for this process. You know, my players, the coaches that work for me and the coaches that I work for, not that Karch is getting better for me being on me. I'm not saying that. But there's been times, you know, we had Alex Klein and was able to be a volunteer assistant when she needed a place. So there's been ways to contribute to each other. So the number one thing is the support of people like my wife. And then streamlining everything has been another huge thing. And then the other thing is just organization. I try to stay six months ahead of everything. I try to see conflicts way ahead. If I see a conflict with someone, I try to communicate it way ahead of time. That builds a lot of trust. And I try to keep everybody in the loop all the time. I try to be really transparent. So I think the support system streamlining and, and just trying to be hyper-organized, those things have helped. You know, and it's kind of pushed me. I mean, it's pushed me to find better ways in my day to be 
if every minute counts and I need to do my job, but continue to get better also and be good for my family. Like I got to get that done. I mean, I, I cannot do it, but the different responsibilities in my life aren't going to care that I'm busy. They need things done. So how do I do that? That's really pushed me to organize my day and find different tricks. So I've been really grateful for that process too. I mean, stuff that I'll carry with me, even if I'm only doing one thing or focusing on one thing. Can you speak on some of the benefits of beach for your indoor players? Do you think indoor oh, players should be playing beach? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I'll get on another rant, but beach volleyball has just been the greatest thing ever for our program at LMU. I, I don't think you have to play beach to be a great indoor player, but I think if you do play beach, it absolutely will make you a better player. And I'm concerned there's a strong movement in the NCAA to kind of separate the two programs. I'm really concerned by that. I don't get it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many players I need to list here that did both and benefited from both. And our best beach players were great indoor players. You know, Karch Karai, Misty May, Kerry Walsh, you know, I'm John Mayer going down the list here. Yeah. I think the science pretty much backs it up. Another kind of sidebar. I mean, I think one of the next frontiers for statistics is to measure transfer in drills based on the amount of transfer in this drill. How much improvement can we expect going into the next match? I think I'd like to see a study of that in terms of how Beach translates that. But just what we know about motor learning, we know about specificity, we know about random practice, and there's just no way you can say the amount of serves and passes and the amount of court you have to cover and all those bad balls you have to make better. I'd like to see the argument how that doesn't transfer to indoors. Then I've just seen it. I've just seen the development, and we're, we've been watching really closely. Like, you know, can we quantify that beach volleyball is making LMU indoors better? Can we quantify that? You know, recruiting. Can we quantify that on the court? And we've gotten pretty close to being able to say, yeah, for sure it is. So I think it's great. If someone just wants to play beach, I think that's awesome. If they just want to play indoors, that's great too. But I think we absolutely should celebrate the players that want to do both and just play volleyball and see both sports as volleyball. And we should have opportunities in college for that. So I don't know we're all about that. But um, you know. So I hear from coaches and athletes, like, oh, I have these bad habits from indoor. I've brought them to my beach game. And I think there's this kind of connotation out there that you have to teach the skills differently. Like indoors, we pass this way and we set this way. And on the beach, it's, you know, you have to use your legs when you bump set. So can you speak on that? Do you have to teach differently? My belief is that the skills are the same. And the reason I believe that is because biomechanics exist. They exist on an uneven surface and they exist on an even surface. So there's an efficient, repeatable, effective movement pattern. It's going to hold up generally on both surfaces. But I think the systems of beach and indoor are definitely different. If I was going to oversimplify it, you know, indoors, you're trying to create space. You're trying to get way off the net or you're trying to spread your offense. You're trying to put pressure on the blocks. You're trying to create space in a way. And then in beach, you're trying to keep the space a lot more tight, a lot more similar. Again, that's a total oversimplification. But just in general, you know, indoors is going wide and beach is staying close. So I think the systems are very different, but that's it. I think the skills are the same. I think the transfer from beach to indoors is incredible. I actually, I think there's more transfer from beach to indoors than vice versa, even though there's still some. That's my belief. But I do think there's some systems difference. And I think we're looking to do some exciting statistical work. And I think that's going to show some variations and some differences for sure. So I'm excited to learn all that. But I think the skills are the skills. And that's the big reason why it transfers. If the skills are completely different, then I don't think it would transfer as much. So we've been getting some listener questions. We appreciate them. And I figured while we have Tom on, might as well ask him instead of us trying to figure it out. Let's see, from Geraldine, she has two questions. One, how do you mesh results-oriented and stat-keeping? When it comes to keeping stats, determining like playing time or whatever, oh. how do you balance that with making mistakes in practice, learning? We're talking about the cauldron. So like players keep points in practice. And, you know, I think Anson Dorrance is the one who created that, the women's soccer coach at UNC. He's one of the greatest college coaches of all time of any sport. He's been pretty adamant that he doesn't base his starting team off that cauldron, but he also doesn't apologize for it. You know, it is what it is. It's just, it's just a record of performance. So we definitely keep points in practice. We make sure that we're mixing parts all the time. But like he says, I mean, I, I'm going to decide the starting team. 
if the starting team is grossly different than the points being won in practice, I should probably have a pretty solid reason for that. And I also, I want to make the best decision possible. So I, I want stats of how we're serving and passing, how we're doing different things, because I want to be able to make the best decision I can heading into that first match. So I think one of the challenges I have to decide, what do I want the players to know and what do I not? I don't really think they need to worry too much about their passing average or their hitting efficiency in practice. That's just my opinion. I like having a record of points during practice because that's how the game is. There's a score on the board and you have to decide you're going to let that dictate you or, or not. So I like having that. I'm trying to create as much game-like pressure as possible and then trying to coach the responses. So I think in a game, you know, the scoreboard is there and there's people who care about the score. But you just need to focus on this point. Like you desperately want this point, but you just need to focus on what you need to do to give yourself every chance possible, right? So I want to try to create enough pressure in practice. I'm definitely not trying to distract the player, but I'm trying to create enough game-like intensity that you will be distracted if you're not focused on the right things. And that's where a lot of the teaching comes in. You know, hey, like, what do you think about right now? Okay, well, let's focus on this. Let's stay uh, disciplined on that. Hopefully when they go to the game, they feel like they've trained the mental challenges in their response to that so that they're ready to go in the game. So we definitely want to keep points because the score matters. There's, there definitely is going to be a winner or a loser. You want to compete for it. They don't need to know stats that I need to know as a coach, but I definitely want it to feel game-like and I want to coach them through that so they can put their focus on the things they can control that, that really matter and give them a chance to win that point. What kind of stakes do you give the team in practice to make it game-like or is winning and losing enough for your gym? I try to connect the team to where they want to be as a team. And I try to have that clear from the beginning. So like, you know, if it's, if we've been able to have a conversation like, Nils, where do you want to go as a player? You know, I want to be, it's been for every player, but you're like, Hey, I, you know, I want to be an Olympian. Like, okay, well, what do you think you need to do? Well, I need to get better as a passer. Like, okay, what about passing? You know, I really need to hold my platform better. Okay, great. How do you think the team's doing? I think we're doing okay, but I think we're choking a little bit. Like, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, we actually, like, we stop talking when the score gets tight. We need to like, make sure we're keeping eye contact and being loud. Like, Okay, great. Well, how are you helping that? Like, well, actually, I kind of shut up too. I need to make sure you're out there. So now we've established a platform. Now we get in the game and I'm like, okay, here it is. Nils, hold your platform. See how your team responds. Are they getting quiet? You know, like, and, and now like you've connected that into the bigger goal and, and there's no turnkey, you know, it's different for everyone. But if, if we can get connected to where we want to be and we can see how this present moment is either helping or hurting our ability to get to where we want to be, then the stakes go way up. You know, all of a sudden we really care. And then as the season goes on, you're, compiling more and more evidence like you know you did do it last week or you didn't do it are we going to keep doing this or do we want to be different you know going into this next match if you're achieving by and then hopefully that intensity is rising if you're not getting it then there's some disconnect somewhere and again that's why i think coaching just never gets boring because every team is different and every person is different and these are hard problems to solve you know like we could say here like obviously we're not going to do it but we could say we have the magic formula and it's just going to blow up next year when these five people respond differently and that to me is just why this job is awesome it's just so hard you know <laughs> Geraldine's number two is what is a coach's role in helping team dynamics as far as clicks, kind of more of the emotional side? Yeah, I think that's why coaching never gets old. I don't think we're ever going to have. As soon as we answer that, I think the next day we're going to learn something to, to make that even better. But um, we definitely don't want clicks. This book called Resiliency, that's really good. Karch turned me on to it. It's by this uh, Navy SEAL. He's become a leader in all these other domains too. But I'm going to butcher the quote. But there's a quote. The strength of the team is when the purpose of the team is inversely proportional to the disagreements and differences we have within it. So basically he was saying like, if we're in an argument and we're kind of ticked off at each other, the more that matters than what the goal of the team is about, the weaker the team. If we have an argument, which is going to happen, but we squelch that because the purpose of this team matters so much to us, the stronger the team. And that, that's what a strong team is all about when the purpose is so compelling that we're all driven towards it. So a really easy example is the firefighters in 9-11. You got to believe there's some stuff going on like this guy stole five bucks from this guy or this guy got in a fight Friday night with this guy. But 
all we know right now is those buildings are coming down. Those people are going to die. So I don't give a crap you know, about our differences. We're going to go save those people together. That's kind of the height of what the purpose of a great team can do. So we don't want clicks and you know, we want to be unified. And then how do we get it there? I think we have to treat every individual like we care about them. That means we recognize them as individuals and we have a path for their growth. Uh, we have to try to get the team on one central mission. I think the mission of that team, so like how good can we be? What can we become? I think that's a lot more important than we want to win conference or we want to get this trophy. It's like, no, what, what do we look like if we're really good? Let's try and do that. Those are really simple things, but if we're bought into our individual plan for growth, we feel like we're cared about. We care about the person next to us and we all want to go in the same direction, then that's the deal. So how do you get there? That's when it gets really, really complicated and it gets messy and it gets dirty. But I guess my best answer is you just dive in there. As our emotional intelligence grows and we can help other people's emotional intelligence grow, we can navigate those problems faster. And it's just a messy, hard process. It's fun to hear you describe <laughs> it as a messy process because I think it is, you know, it gets muddled up. It's a difficult thing to do. So it's nice to hear somebody else confirm that as clean as we try to make it. Jackson wanted to know if you can go back those two years in peers and give yourself some advice, what would you tell yourself? It's a tough one because I, I really did the best I could in the moment. I think I would prepare myself more than tell myself anything. I would just be like, this is going to be tough. Every part of you is going to be pushed. You're going to doubt yourself every day, but just do things for the right reasons. Don't ever do things for what you think people are going to think you look like. Trust your gut, be open to learning, and just push. It's funny to hear you talk about the Pierce years because you were there for two years and you win two state championships. <laughs> it's this like it's this like tough experience. The two years were so different too because you know Big Daddy he calls that first year the miracle year, and it really was. I mean, Orange, Orange Coast College was thirty and zero, untouched. We're playing the state finals at Orange Coast. You know, we had a really good team, but we had a few losses, and we were just banged up. We had two middle blockers healthy. We were just kind of groveling and fighting through. And then to beat Orange Coast at Orange Coast, it was just this magical thing. And, you know, it was a game that I'll never, ever forget. I mean, it was just so special. And, and then the second year, we were super, super talented. And I just kind of felt relief at the end because we were just kind of trying to get guys on the same page. Every day was a battle. I think the first year was just an incredible learning experience all the way around. The second year to win it, but just kind of to feel relief, not a lot of joy or satisfaction that really hit me that winning really is not everything. I don't really enjoy feeling like this. Definitely opened me up even more about the process. Yeah. And then just meeting Big Daddy and seeing what a mentor really could be, what kind of, you know, I mean, my dad's had the biggest impact on my life, but then Ken Stanley is right after him. And I've never had anyone impact me that much who wasn't my dad. So to, to see that someone could have that much of an influence in your life was an indelible impression on me. I guess most people decide, oh, I had a good year. We won a state championship. And clearly that isn't and wasn't the deciding factor for you on how good a coaching job you did. So what do you base? I coached my best or this was a, a great coaching year. I don't know. I don't know if I can think that way. I know I judge my effort every day. I definitely judge that. I try to even judge it in the moment. Like, am I really focused? Am I alert? And then I just get up and do it again. I don't know. I definitely want feedback. I want to see how I got better, but I don't spend too much time thinking about what I did well. Unless it's like, did I do it well and do I want to do it again? I guess I think of that. I don't know. I guess that's as far as I go with it. So you're not like, oh, this year at LMU, you know, we had a historic win over Stanford and we made the Sweet 16. Like, I just knocked it out of the park. You don't think that way? <laughs> <laughs> what did I think? after? Yeah, it was just a cool moment. The thing that hit me about Stanford was how much it meant to LMU. It was cool because, well, my wife and daughter were right there. They made the drive up. So that was cool to see them right away. But then we were walking in the locker room and my athletic director said, hey, Tom, can I come in the locker room with you guys? And I'm like, you're my boss. You can do whatever you want. I've never had a better boss. He's awesome. But we come in the locker room and he was trying to get out that, hey, I got 40 texts during this game asking how the score is going. And I was saying, we're, we're going to win this. Like, he was trying to say that, but he was like, I got 40 texts and then, and then just starts 
falling up and tearing and you could just see like how much this meant to him like he's been at LMU for so long and you just felt like all this gratification like so that it was it was really and the girls started cheering and you know and then he started it was just a great moment so I felt humbled and I was just so stoked to see that and experience that but other than that it was like okay let's move on not let's move on like it didn't matter but let's keep going let's get better yeah do you consider this past year your most successful season at LMU? Why or why not? The team obviously did as well as only one other team's done. But it's sort of like, was this my most successful coaching year? Like, no. I mean, like I said, I, I honestly don't look at that. I don't compare years. I don't think it's fair to compare years because for sure, I, I better be a better coach than I was last year. And you're like, if I'm not, then I really need to take a hard look in the mirror and make, of course, I should be better. But that doesn't mean that I didn't do the best I could. I don't know. I just don't even really look at that. I'm just trying to get better. The team, I thought, did really well. But by far, one of the biggest lessons to me, and it's definitely not Stanford because Stanford was great, but we were just playing the game and it went well. And it's just that simple. Like the biggest lesson to me of that season was there was just all this tumult going on, you know, before conference started. And, you know, I had to go in and out because of World Cup. And that was a lot of uh, turmoil for the team. And, you know, we had a key injury and just blah, 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 like stuff teams go through. But we start conference and we're 0-3 and we're playing horrible. And I remember it was dark, you know, and I remember being in the room with my wife and go, you know, man, we are not playing well. And it's not like, okay, look, we're just going to get better at this. We're not looking like we're, we're focused or we're not looking like we believe we can do this. I mean, we were 0 and 3. And I remember there's a lot of people asked, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And all this stuff. And, you know, I was like, we're, you know, we're going to get better. I remember making just like this internal decision, like, look, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't even care what these girls think. I'm going to put blinders on and we're just going to get better. And if I believe in something, we're going 100%. And I'll listen to what anyone says, but only if it's constructive. Otherwise, I'm just filtering out. And I don't know. I just kind of got in lockdown mode. And the girls did also. And we just really made a commitment to focusing on today. There was no goals. We never talked about going to the tournament. We didn't talk about winning this game or that game. We didn't talk about winning conference. We just locked in on the day. This team did an incredible job of that. And we had this great streak going on. But honestly, and I'm not faking this week, I didn't know it was going on. And we, we were just... We just had to get the next one and had to get the next one. Like, And when I say the next one, I mean the, like the next day. And, and this team did better than any team in LMU's ever done but one and crushed a lot of expectations anyone would have ever had from. But we, we just never talked about it. We just kept going. And that was a big lesson for me because there was no goals other than do great today, like do really well today. Do well today so you have confidence heading into tomorrow. That's all it was. And I learned a lot seeing the girls do that. And seeing the byproduct of that work heading into Stanford and you know, whether we would have won or lost Stanford, I mean, the way they were competing, that's, that's what it was all about. That was really cool for me to see. And that was kind of opposite of the second year of Paris. You know, I got so much gratification from that, just seeing how they went about it and how they did it. And it was a great, great experience for me to see that. VB Pro 12 asks, would you suggest teams not making season goals like winning conference? Would I suggest that? I don't know. I'm just giving you an opinion here. So I just want to be clear on that. I think great teams have compelling purposes that they just really really believe in i don't know them intimately well but it seems to me like navy seals have a compelling purpose that they really believe in and i think a lot of great sports teams do so i, I think that purpose matters i think the more controllable that purpose is and the more it makes you a better person as a player the probably better the goal is you know if winning conference does a lot for you then, then great there's got to be examples of teams who are like that's all they talked about and they played better than they ever thought i just haven't seen it or experienced it but what really gives me a lot of meaning is the goal that if we do this, we will be the best version of players and persons that we can possibly see of ourselves right now. And let's buy into this. That to me is really cool. Finding that is really hard, but I think that's sustainable. So then to wrap up, you know, you're heading to Rio with the national team. What is that purpose? Is it all about getting that gold medal? Like what uh, motivates that team? 
think that's more of a question for Karch. But, you know, I know we've talked about being great learners and maybe that could possibly lead to doing something no one's ever been done. And I know for me, you know, coaching the setters, what I think is, I think winning gold medals, I think winning national championships, I think I think they're great moments and I think they evaporate really quickly. And I think in a couple of years, nobody even remembers. So I think what gives it meaning is the way that it happened. And did it happen in a way that if others see it, they get better from it? That to me is, is the number one goal of this. Like, are we going about trying to be the best team in the world, trying to give the best showing to Olympics. Are we doing that in a way that makes us better players and people? And are we doing that in a way that anyone who touches our gym is going to be better for it? That to me is the most important thing. And I know that's something that Karch and the coaching staff and the players are constantly buying into. So being great learners, being a family that can do something that's never been done before, but again, in a way that helps everyone around them be better. Because awesome. you can't learn from it. If you're achieving these great things and you can't learn from it, then, then who cares? It's just a great moment and it evaporates. But it, if you're doing it in a way that makes... You know, I'm getting a little high-minded, but you know, makes the world better. That's sustainable and that's cool and that's worth doing. That was a little soapboxy. That was good stuff. I have kind of a broad question. I'm wondering how big of an impact can a person have as a coach, and how can we measure that? Man, yeah, that gets me a little emotional. I don't know if I've always been as responsible to that as I should be. I think I've acted for a long time like ah, they don't care that much or I'm just kind of helping them or I'm really getting to this kid but I'm not getting to that kid or I think I went that way for a long time it doesn't mean I I definitely cared I cared a lot but I kind of minimized my impact from one to the next and the reality for sure there's some kids you're going to impact more than others there's some teams more than others but you can't minimize the influence that you have on these people I mean for the most part most of them are going to remember you and kind of have an image of how you impacted them for the rest of their lives and I think the goal should be how do I change as many lives for the better as I can for the rest of their lives? Like, how do I do that? That is a mammoth goal. And we have the ability to do that. Coaches have the ability to do that. Everyone has the ability to do that. But the nature of coaching is it's just kind of thrusted on you. And we have to decide if we're really going to take it or not. I think that's the impact we can have. I'm striving for that. I don't think I'm anywhere close. I have a long way to go, but I, I really, I really want to achieve that. Nothing would make me happier. My dad is one of the greatest guys I know and one of the biggest impressions he was a physical therapist, but every year at Christmas, you know, you're always excited to wake up for your gifts, but I would wake up and go to the Christmas tree and from the tree to the hallway were all these gifts and they're all his patients. And it was like every year. And uh, there was one day in the hospital, uh, his therapy wing got closed down by the hospital and his patient picketed. They picketed for a couple of days and they got it back. And I, I just remember the impact that he had. I think about myself as a coach and I, I think about what people are going to think about my dad when he's done. Like for sure, like he, he made my elbow better. He, he rehabbed me better. That stuff's important, but they really remember him and who they want to be. So if you can do that as a physical therapist, it's very important. How can we not do that as a coach? Well, in some ways we have even more influence. Awesome. Cool. Well, Tom, <laughs> with your busy schedule for us to get an hour and a half out of you, it, it means a lot to us. And just want to thank you for all you've done for me. And thank you for the trip down memory lane. It was fun to recall some of those good and tough memories. And thanks a lot. Uh, well, I mean, I owe you, John. You've been a huge influence in my life. I'm excited for how you're impacting the girls in our program now. And I'm still learning from you as a coach. And you guys are doing an awesome job in this podcast. It's really cool to watch how you guys, you guys started really, really bad. It was a horrible podcast, but it's really gotten good. You guys, no, it's an awesome resource and you're doing it for the right reason. So it's really cool to listen. We had our Pierce days as well. You know, we got through it and we're going to be better. <laughs> Keep pushing. Well, thanks, Tom. Well, thanks, right, Tom. Cool. That was thanks, great. We'd love to have you on again soon. Oh, yeah. Anytime. We've been getting a lot of emails to our email account, which is coachyourbrain at yahoo.com.
And it's really cool to hear the questions and just hear that people are listening and are excited. And it means a lot to us. So anytime you want to send us an email, it's, it's great. The more we can get people subscribing and, and writing reviews. So thank you for all those who have already done that.